0: follow me on social media, you have probably seen me post about my superfood probiotic shots that I take every single morning. I've been using these biome supplements for the past year, and I absolutely love them. Biome is your one-stop shop for supplements that support overall wellness by helping you optimize your gut health. I love taking these superfood probiotic shots to start my day because not only have I noticed a big improvement in my health, they also taste delicious. Head over to biomehealth.com. That's B-I-O-H-M health.com and use my code HANNAH for 20% off your order. I'll link it in the description below. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of The Byword Show. I'm so glad you're here. Really excited for today's episode. We've got Helen Taylor here with us from Exodus Cry. And this episode, I know, is going to be... (laughs) A lot. Like, I think we're just going to dive into a lot, and I'm really excited to talk about some of these things. So, before we get started, make sure you hit pause, screenshot this episode, and tag us to let us know you're here. I love seeing that you're listening, and let's dive in. So, Helen, as we're beginning, would you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your story, and how you got involved in the human trafficking world?
1: Yeah, well, it's so great to be on your podcast, Hannah, and um, I just love that really important conversations are able to happen. Uh, all over the world, really, and people, no matter where they're living, are able to um tune in and like even though technology has so many corrupt, harmful uses, I love that in the activism world, it's opened so many doors to really um shift culture and bring about really important messages so it's a total honor to be on your show mm-hmm. and um chat with you today uh yeah my my kind of journey into human trafficking. Began while I was at university when I first found out about the kind of global horrors of this um, systemic uh, evil industry. Um, but I think I'd always had a real heart for women in prostitution. And when I was um, about 16, I got lost in a part of London that had a, it wasn't really an official red light district, but it was just this alleyway where there were sex shops, a couple of strip clubs, some um, adult bookstores, and there was a woman in a red dress just standing in this doorway. And I realized that um, she was in prostitution. And um, I, I, she didn't look English to me. She looked uh, Eastern European. And she was just standing in this doorway, like kind of rocking her body, just waiting for uh, a customer. And I just remember in that moment thinking, like feeling so much rage that this situation before me even existed. And I had the thought that I could be mm. some. Um, completely undesirable, perverted, smelly, horrible man that she has zero desire for. But just because I have money, it gives me power agency um, control to purchase access to this vulnerable woman's body Mm. in a non-consensual way. Like she's not consenting to the sex, she's consenting to the money. And so that the immediate power dynamic and inequality of prostitution hit me in the gut. Ended up getting out of that area, got on the train, wrote about this in my journal as I was going uh, home in London and I was just crying the whole way, way home. And then a few years later at college, finding out that, they, that prostitution was actually, um, you know, over 40 million women worldwide are exploited in prostitution and um, studies show that around 89% of them want to escape. And so just realising mm-hmm. how so many factors Um, push women into a place of forced prostitution. Um, yes, there's the force, the 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 physical force aspect that a lot of people think of when they think of trafficking, but the fraud and coercion and even just economic pressures where women feel they don't have choices. And it's not just women, it's, um, children and, and boys as well. Um, but so that was, uh, over 10 years ago. And I began working for Exodus Cry, um, around 10 years ago. Um, I'm from England originally. Um, uh, and I, uh, right before working for Exodus Cry, I was an art therapist in Cambodia. And so my journey began really um, in the professional field, working with survivors. Um, but I, wow. I always had a heart for those still exploited, still in it. And and how do we address these issues upstream? Um, so, yeah, that's a, a snapshot of my story, obviously like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And so what is the work that you're doing currently with Exodus Cry? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, well, when I first joined um, and moved here from the UK, I thought I'd just be um, on a one-year visa. And obviously, the Lord made a way, and that turned into multiple years, and then I got a green card. But for most of my time working for Exodus Cry, I was the director of outreach and intervention. So over all of our outreach services and teams where we would go uh, reaching women and people in all areas of the sex industry from the streets strip clubs innocent massage parlors the internet pornography conventions weekly jail program at risk women and um, and we still do all those things but now i kind of supervise the teams that do that and i became the vice president of impact last year so now i get to be involved in a few other areas of the organization and just looking at the bigger picture of how can we make the the widest, deepest, furthest impact um, on this issue and really abolish sex trafficking? What is it going to take to actually abolish um, this systemic injustice in our lifetime while still having the mm. value and heart to reach out to the one on a regular basis?
0: Mm. that is so that's so good, and it's so it's so cool that your journey into this world started with that interaction, just seeing that one woman on the street, because I think it's so different, you know, like maybe it's the same for you in the UK at that time. But like for me in the US, you hear these stories and it's very sensationalized, but you don't really understand what it's like behind the scenes for those women. And seeing it firsthand is the craziest experience to think that there are actual women who are in these situations and, and you touched on these, like all of the factors that could lead a woman in and girls, children into that position. It's crazy, but I love the work that you guys are doing with Exodus cry. And it's so cool that you now get to see that on a large scale too. So you kind of had this full spectrum experience of like seeing these women and then also like seeing all over the world, like what's going on. That's gotta be crazy. Yeah, I think um,
1: I've done this work in around 12 countries now. I've been to red light districts all over the world. And obviously in different countries, different cultures, prostitution has slightly different contexts and different um, systems. But ultimately, the core issues are the same of the exploitation of vulnerability, a person who desires the sex and a person who does not. And um, all the the, the range of exploitations taking place. And we just consistently see um, it's it's women from the most vulnerable backgrounds. So um, youth youth out of the foster care system, um, those who experienced childhood sexual abuse, um, those who are teen runaways or homeless or have um, just vulnerabilities in their own um, personal identities and their ethnic and sexual minorities, um, single mothers, uh, and traffickers really prey upon those vulnerabilities and they'll push different buttons to really uh, discover what a person's vulnerabilities are, room them, build trust, and really exploit that. Um, and so mm. I think it's, yeah, there, there's nothing on the planet that makes me more angry. I feel like it's the biggest evil and injustice of our time and mm. um, just something that is so important for people to address the church to address and women to address it's so uncomfortable like I was telling a group the other week that it's a much more comfortable perspective to have that women in the sex industry choose that lifestyle because then we don't have to do anything about it if they've chosen it then we're not Mm. responsible and um, we can just dismiss them as well they some people must just like prostitution um but the reality is that if you sit down with any survivor and hear what they go through in, in one day in their life in prostitution, you can discover immediately that no woman um, would choose to be, um, yeah, go through the things that, that they go through. And the majority right. of people in prostitution have a pimp, have a third party person who takes all of their money or 100% of their money. And we see that time and time again. And a lot of people don't acknowledge that factor of the coercion and the role of the pimp.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I really love and admire about Exodus Cry is that you guys have really touched on what's going on in the porn industry in relation to human trafficking. And I feel like that's a piece that a lot of people who aren't really familiar with human trafficking, maybe don't understand. And I mean, you and I were talking about this before we hit record. It is heavy like the things that go on are very dark in the industry but I'm so grateful that you guys are shedding light on that so would you kind of share for those who maybe don't know what's going on in the porn industry and with Pornhub and like all the stuff you guys have been doing would you talk to us about that and then how it's connected to human trafficking yeah for sure um and just to even backtrack real quick because
1: I I realized that I shared about my my journey and my role but just as an organization for people who are still wondering like so wait extra try they're going after human trafficking or porn so we we began as an organization um and we still are that exists to abolish sex trafficking to break the cycle of commercial exploitation and the ways that we do that is through shifting culture and changing minds and then um, direct outreach and assistance to victims and survivors and um William Wilberforce was, um, is a real hero of ours, and um, he abolished the transatlantic slave trade in the 1800s, and um, it, it took 20 years to abolish the slave trade, another 10 years to bring about full emancipation for uh, slaves, and in that whole time frame, he tried to pass this law 13 times, um, but realized that you have to shift the, the mindset of the culture that had allowed and normalize this way of thinking first and so we're really committed to shifting the culture and telling the story we want to change laws and improve anti-trafficking laws around the world but we really know that to do that you have to shift the culture and so we make these films and documentaries and short content um, on social media platforms we're really wanting to uh, educate and bring awareness, not just for the sake of bringing awareness, but to actually shift the culture and go to mm. demand. And then we provide therapy for survivors and, and outreach to victims, which I mentioned before. But if you picture a tree, we we really feel like the the kind of rotting fruit, the consequences um, of sex trafficking. If, if you um, see them as, as these rotting fruit on a tree of a life that is ravaged and destroyed. Um, by by someone who, by by the issue of sex trafficking, Um, you could pick a few of these fruit off the tree, but more will grow back. Or you could cut off a branch, Mm -hmm. maybe you arrest a trafficker after a whole trafficking ring, and there's 50 women and girls in that ring. It's cutting off a branch of this tree, but the branch will grow back. And so Mm -hmm. someone who initially worked with survivors and then um, has been involved in outreach here in the US and around the world, I know that even if we assist 100 girls out of trafficking, there's 100 more vulnerable girls next week that can be recruited by traffickers. And so we felt really wow. compelled to think, okay, what is it actually going to take to break the back of sex trafficking in the next 10 years or 20 years? What is it going to take in a really um, powerful, intentional, like impactful way to... to uh, not just assist a hundred women, but um, reduce prostitution and sex trafficking by millions. And we, we really feel like in this tree analogy, the, the trunk is the system of prostitution. What are women and children trafficked into? Um, referring exclusively to sex trafficking, of course, they're trafficked into a system, the sex industry, pornography, prostitution, mm. stripping, strip clubs are often the, the kind of, um, the top of the pipeline, not every woman who dances at a strip club is being trafficked, but there's definite levels of exploitation. And I've worked with women who were, um, their traffickers recruited them from the strip clubs. Um, it was almost like an audition um, for them to see which girls they, they like the look of to traffic. Hmm. Um, but at the root of the tree is, is male demand for sex. And these roots thrive in a, the culture and the soil um, that is a pornographic culture and soil. So just to even give context as to why an anti-trafficking organization would start addressing pornography, some people who are listening are like, well, duh, yeah, of course it's obvious, Um, but some people still struggle to make the connect. And there's several different ways that human trafficking and pornography intersect, but just to even give that initial picture of to go after the, the tree of sex trafficking, you have to address the root. Um, the supply exists because the demand is there first, and the demand thrives in a pornographic soil. So the first intersection between porn and trafficking is that uh, every single sex buyer that we've interviewed. We have a documentary coming out um, in a few weeks, all about um, sex buyers. Who are the the men who buy sex? The the driving force, the economic force behind this whole industry. People talk mm-hmm. about the money that traffickers make, but where does this money come from? It doesn't from a vacuum it comes from um, men who are willing Mm -hmm. to purchase the consent of vulnerable people so every single sex buyer that we've interviewed told us that they've um, they were exposed to pornography as a child and it began a a multi-year pornography addiction and not every person who watches porn crosses that line to purchase um sexual access to someone but um, every person who, who does do that has a history of porn addiction. And it's the fantasy that then it gets to a point where they, they want to cross that line and actually pay someone to physically fulfill that fantasy. And so we see yeah. pornography as being the marketing force of human trafficking, fueling the demand. i always remember this woman that I interviewed in Cambodia when I was an art therapist there who told me that she had been... Uh, trafficked from her village, age 11, to a brothel in Cambodia. And throughout her teen years, as this trafficked victim um, in a brothel in Phnom Penh, Western men from Europe, from America, from Australia would come and uh, show her pornography on their, their phones and computers and uh, get her to reenact exactly what they were showing her. And I remember wow. thinking, like, that was my first ever, like, solid connection between pornography being connected to to trafficking so that's mm-hmm. one area that they intersect and a lot of people understand that and know that if you're watching pornography it for many people is a slippery slope that takes them into um, then purchasing sex with a traffic victim yeah and um, the thing is there's, there's no way for a sex buyer to know or not know if she's being trafficked or not sex buyers don't Sit with a girl in prostitution and say, "Show me your paperwork. I want to check your over eighteen. Um, show me yeah. that you're you don't have a pimp. Show me that you're not being coerced. Like demand creates demand for trafficking. Period. There isn't one set of buyers who buy trafficked girls, and one set of buyers who buy women in prostitution who choose this willingly. Um, mm. And the second thing that we really discovered a, a couple of years ago. Uh, many people have seen Pornhub in the news the last couple of years. It's made major international headlines. Back in 2019, our team uh, began to just hear a couple of stories in the news that really troubled us. One of them was of a 15-year-old missing girl from Florida who was discovered a year later on Pornhub in 58 videos. This girl was underage. She was 15. She was a trafficking victim mm. and 58 videos of her on this website that under a verified account and so her trafficker had somehow got a verified account um, on Pornhub and the internet watch foundation found um, uh, a number of non-consensual videos on Pornhub including a a, a victim as young as three years old and we heard a few of these stories and my colleague just began to investigate and she was like well how how is this website um, allowing videos of underage and trafficked individuals onto their website. And she discovered that mm-hmm. to upload any video content, it's kind of like a YouTube type of platform, of most of the content um, is user generated. And she discovered that all you need to upload content was an email address. They didn't verify um, the identity or age of the uploader or the people in the videos. Wow. So that began um, uh, a, a journey of exposing, talking about this. Um, she wrote an op-ed that went viral. And the very next day after her op-ed, the BBC released a report as well. And so suddenly this was um, international news. It was all a few weeks before COVID. Mm. And so just around the, the lockdowns, people paying attention to the news more than ever, we released a petition, like shut down Pornhub and hold its executives accountable. That petition went viral, over 2 million signatures. We called this campaign, the Trump wow. campaign, um, and it went uh, really viral it became a, a global movement and over 300 organizations signed on it had oh, so many survivors um, of trafficking who of revenge porn girls who were under age on Pornhub contacted us and we were able to connect them with lawyers um, and so then the New York Times uh, saw this animated video that we've made that also gone really viral and um, it had a 34 million views. This was summer 2020. The, the New York Times wow. reached out. And they did their own investigation. They found non-consensual content on corner within 10 minutes. And um, it's I'm just giving you the full overview because it's such a wild and exciting story. It's hard to just like, yeah, just give a, a snapshot. of yeah. the unfolding story. <laughs> Basically, it, the tipping point moment happened in December 2020. It was on the front page of the New York Times. A um, brave survivor. Um, with Serena um, shared her story, and her her photograph was like the cover of the entire paper. Within days, mm. Mastercard and Visa cut ties with Pornhub. And Pornhub, um, like we'd released several demands that we were making in Pornhub, including that they remove the download button because for survivors, um, it was immortalizing their trauma, and for them to try and uh, mm. recover from the, the trauma of a rape or trafficking situation, the knowledge that, that had been filmed, recorded, was uploaded onto this website, making money for this website, and they were unable to take it down, knowing that men were watching this every day. Some of these videos have millions of views, and several survivors mm-hmm. had um, been unsuccessful in getting Pornhub to even take down these videos, and um, and some told us that every single morning they would have to go on Pornhub and check because someone re-uploaded it. So we said to Pornhub, you have to remove wow. the download button um, and, uh, and remove all unverified videos. And they, they took down 10 million videos, 80% of their entire website that were all unverified. They had no idea how many hundreds, potentially mm. thousands of non-consensual videos were on their site. Um, so that was a major breakthrough. Wow. And then so many more things have happened. It felt like wave after wave of justice the last two years <laughs> and um, the last update That I'll just give is uh, a month or so ago the COO and the CEO of Pornhub resigned and they fired uh, around half their company and then Visa and MasterCard who were named in a lawsuit by survivors as well yeah they cut ties not only with Pornhub but every website owned by MindGeek so porn fuels demand and videos of trafficked individuals are on these porn tube sites mixed in with consensual videos and then the third way that porn and trafficking um, majorly intersect is um, relates to the documentary that we just released last week um, that exposes how even in the quote unquote legal pornography industry, um, so not homemade videos uploaded onto tube sites, um, but in the studio-based porn industry, there is a lot of um, coercion and exploitation and abuse that takes place um, mm. that would come under the legal definition of human trafficking, um, the coercion tactics that pornographers use, several of which they've shared with us on camera in these interviews. So The film wow. that we just released um, is called Beyond Fantasy, and I can share more about that. But just to say, those are kind of three of the main intersections. Um, and I know that's just such a lot, but <laughs> there is no way for anyone who's watching a pornography video to know if the person behind the camera truly gave their consent, what is their story? What is compelling them to be in pornography? You don't know that that woman isn't experiencing it as a actual rape um, or isn't actually underage when a lot of these sites don't verify age properly. Sorry, right. that. that was a lot.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's so helpful because. I think that this is just a piece of trafficking that has gone unnoticed for way too long. And I think that analogy with the tree, it makes so much sense because really the supply is there because there's a demand and this demand has just been so ingrained in our culture for so long. And like just the over-sexualization of women in the entertainment industry and just so many things feeding it that it makes so much sense that this is what's fueling the issue and prolonging the issue. And so I think it's really helpful to have that explained for people who just really aren't aware because they think that human trafficking is oh I need to be careful walking around at night because I don't want to get kidnapped, you know, but it's it's so much more complex than that and it's so much more gosh, just dark and twisted. There's just so much going on behind the scenes. And especially with this porn hub, gosh, I remember that in 2019, when all of that was coming out and everybody, like there were so many people I knew that were just absolutely shocked by that, who had no idea that this was going on in the porn industry and that it was connected to trafficking and that there were like young girls trapped in this and, and being traumatized. And It's just so crazy. I cannot even imagine. And with that, I remember that save the children movement that started going on with that as well. Can you kind of speak to that piece and and what that means and like what, what was actually going on behind the scenes there? Yeah. Well, we, we weren't really connected to that, um, in a,
1: in a direct way at all. I feel like that, um, It was interesting because it was during 2020, obviously, the lockdown where so many people were paying attention to things online. um, But just in general, across the board, it felt like all kinds of injustices uh, were being exposed and captured. And the George Mm -hmm. Floyd situation captured on camera, um, the whole of America seeing that video, and just that like cry for a new wave of of justice coming out from that. Um, Yes. And I I feel like, um, you know, we, we were all being connected through this pandemic there was a lot of sort of a sh- almost a collective shared um trauma obviously to varying degrees to a lot of people but people were losing yeah. family members and the mental health situation of people being forced to stay at home and it was you know 2020 was just a really tough year and um there um, at one point I remember there was this um kind of I think it was it began as a, a reddit thread but this um whole idea of um, the furniture website, Wayfair, um, being used as a mm. cover for trafficking. And that was like later kind of debunked and um, it wasn't actually truth to that. And every anti-trafficking organization and law enforcement later clarified that that isn't actually, that wasn't real. But I think it just opened up all these conversations. Like it, from my memory, that was what sparked a whole n- new wave talking about the issue of trafficking you know a lot of real concerns about and um, the increase of child abuse um, for children not being at school mm. and therefore less um situations of child sexual abuse being identified um and people wanting to there was just a real sense of people were wanting to hit the streets and um and protest and mm. March whether it was the, the Black Lives Matter protests and then people protesting um about the issue of trafficking in a way that hadn't seen people really want to um, protest and take on this issue before and so it was just really interesting that all of those dynamics were happening around the same time that we were talking about Pornhub and um, I I just yeah I feel like a lot of things in in the darkness came into the light and were exposed and people a lot of people found out about trafficking for the first time in 2020 which kind of shocked me because I thought Mm. uh, most people already knew but Um, we were getting a lot of emails and messages from people and it was like, they were only just beginning to find out. And I think it was ultimately because people were spending more time at home online and like um, people on Instagram and social media were talking about these things. And so that, like I was saying before, it's when social media can be really used for good in sharing information. I think of William Wilberforce and how, how long it would have taken him to get a petition with 2 million signatures. Like he would have, Mm. um, had to physically go to so many towns and cities that would have taken him years and years on a whole team. Right. Yet within a few months, because of these like platforms, we were able to spread awareness worldwide. People from 192 different countries signed that petition. And yeah, it was just incredible to see eyes open for the first time.
0: Yes, absolutely. I felt the same way because you know, like when you are in this world and you're hearing about things that are going on and you like understand human trafficking and, and the little pieces of it, you sometimes forget that it's not common knowledge to people. And so there are so many times when I've had conversations with people and I'm sharing information that to me is just like, oh yeah, of course, like everybody knows, but it's New information to them that's shocking, and so I even recently have just begun to think like, wow, like this is still new to people. But it's amazing that there are so many more resources through technology, especially with what you guys are doing, all the documentaries and these these tools and resources you're creating to continue to spread awareness. And so, especially during 2020, with everything that was going on with Pornhub and and the steps you guys were taking, have you noticed that there's been of that culture shift starting to happen since there's been an increase in awareness in the past few years yeah I really do like I feel I feel so encouraged and even when the
1: um you know with the whole wayfair thing my perspective was ultimately like um you know I I don't like conspiracy theories that um that end up harming our movement because they spread truths, and I don't want people thinking that trafficking looks like something that it doesn't because then what happens is they actually miss seeing the real trafficking situations in every day because they think it looks mm. like the take yeah. movie or um, right kids being sold online in a way that they're, they're not but ultimately I was really encouraged that you know, whatever it takes for people to become aware um, and passionate because the reality is that trafficking is happening in our backyards every day that there are um, you know s- it's happening in in the rural areas it's happening in cities it's happening um, with you know sex flyers from who are ordinary everyday men um, but also men in severe positions of power um i feel yeah for sure encouraged and also anytime like when i'm out and about um or just talking to people um that i meet i, I, I it referenced the whole pornhub thing, and so many people have heard of that story, have trapped with it, and so it really like I think penetrated the consciousness uh, of of culture. People who never considered that pornography and trafficking might be related, that never considered, they didn't really think about the real lives of the women in porn. People think of pornography as very much their own little private secret habit. It's just them and their their sex life, and it's not hurting anyone, and they're just watching their little porn collection. And I think for the first time. It really brought so much out in the open, and people were confronted with the reality of, you know, the the women and girls behind the the camera, and and, and men and boys too. There's a lot of exploitation happening, and there's um, yes, there's there's people who are filmed against their will, and a lot of revenge porn situations. We heard from many survivors who it was their ex partner or husband who um who made took videos of them without their knowledge or while they were sleeping or unconscious or even drugged um, and put them on Pornhub. And mm. that was like so, as a sort of revenge um, situation. Sometimes they even doxed them with putting out their private information. So there's so much, um, my, my colleague Lila called it, it's a form of terrorism against women and the porn companies mm. are complicit. And the credit card companies that facilitate and enable these companies to make billions of dollars are complicit. So I, I do feel like, yeah, the thing with porn in the past, even five years ago, if you were to mention exploitation in porn or trafficking in porn, people would have been like, what are you talking about? But now there's definitely um, a real awareness. And I think a lot of people are still in denial and don't like the idea, um, especially if they're a porn consumer, like that conversation leads to a place of you're contributing to this harm by, by watching porn and being a consumer. And that is an uncomfortable place for a lot of people to land the conversation, but I I don't hold back. We we get to those hard places. If people (laughs) want to talk about this, then we want to talk about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love that. And I think definitely it's a conversation that needs to be had, even though it's uncomfortable because truly, I mean, I feel like you guys have seen that that is what creates the change and lasting change, especially like you were able to see action taking place when people became aware. And that is just so cool to see Um, right along with that on a larger scale, because I know you have some experience with this too. Would you kind of speak to some things that maybe you wish people knew more about policy and prevention when it comes to human trafficking? I love that question. Um, And I was thinking about this a few years ago. I remember
1: thinking how the the more that you work with um, survivors of trafficking, the more you have your eyes open to the total trauma um, that prostitution and trafficking brings. Many of the survivors are in therapy for years and years and um, it's devastating. And so the more I worked directly with survivors, the more passionate I became about prevention. Like I love being able to walk alongside and empower survivor and see their whole new life unfold. I've attended weddings of survivors. I've thrown baby showers. Um, for survivors um, I've thrown birthday parties and some survivors I've been in closely in their lives for for more than 10 years Um, but I'm increasingly as the years go by passionate about preventing I don't want another child or woman to go through um, the the trauma of prostitution the trauma of trafficking Um, and to me prevention is like a two-prong approach prevention is identifying who are the most vulnerable. People and populations to trafficking, and how can we um, like systemically reduce their vulnerabilities? Um, so that's you know working with foster care youth, working with juveniles, working with any child who has access to a Wi-Fi connection and access online is at risk of being groomed online. So education and prevention for parents and just so many pieces. I think it's it's great for parents and youth to. Be equipped with the knowledge of the signs of human trafficking and how to spot, how to intervene, and how to be self-aware. Um, but a lot more caution is to to happen around um, kids' safety online, and the the yes. ways that a lot of traffickers exploit them is through coercing them to send a new picture or something that they later would be horrified if it was um, shared to their friends and family. But then the trafficker has got this one right. hook on them and. They drive them, and there's a lot of apps that traffickers specifically use to target um, kids and youth too. So just parents being really aware, and we have a whole web website with resources on that. So yeah, identifying who are the most vulnerable populations. Um, obviously, that looks different in the US to, to other countries too, but yeah, actively reducing their vulnerability. But the other like prong on this, um, prevention prong, is, is demand. Like we were saying earlier, supply hmm. exists because demand does first. If there was no demand for a business, there wouldn't be any supply. The business would shut down. Right. Uh, businesses only exist and thrive because of the demand. And so um, really delving into that topic of what policy worldwide has been the most effective in curbing demand, um, who are the sex buyers, what are their motivations, um, looking at the research and studies on sex buyers and um, really working to educate men, but make it really hard for them to uh, practically purchase someone in prostitution. And so the policy that uh, we know to be the most effective in reducing human trafficking is a policy called the Nordic Model or the Equality Model. And it's currently passed in Mm -hmm. eight different countries. First began in Sweden in 1999, so 23 years ago. And the other countries that have also passed it are Norway, Iceland, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Canada, France, and Israel. And basically in a nutshell, what this policy does is it uh, increases the penalties for sex fires. Its whole goal is to shrink and reduce Mm. the sex industry. So in Sweden, a sex buyer is fined 50 days of his salary. Whatever he earns in 50 days of the year, that is what wow. his fine is. So that's a pretty hefty penalty, especially if you're a higher earner. Yeah. And studies in the States, um, the biggest study on sex buyers with 8,000 buyers, by a group called Demand Abolition showed that um, the majority of sex buyers earn over $100,000 a year. They have a disposable income. They're in positions of privilege and power, choice, and agency. Wow. Um, and... And then it's up to a year in prison and it's, you know, a you know it's a repeat offense. There'll be an increased penalty, but up to a year in prison. So it's like a felony level offense, whereas in the U.S. it's still considered a misdemeanor. Um, mm. So Sweden take a very aggressive approach in going after the demand, the route, and of course, um, traffickers and pimps as well. I was in Sweden last month and just the week that I was there, three traffickers were arrested. And when that happens, wow. they were from other countries. Um, but Sweden wants the whole country to know it's in the media and they're like, if you dare step foot on on our country, you need to know you will be arrested. And same goes for the buyers. It doesn't matter what country you're from. You come to our country um, and try and buy uh, one of our, our women who's vulnerable, you will be found and you will be um, held accountable. So it's, yeah, increases the penalty for the d- demand, but it decriminalizes mm. prostitution entirely for the people being sold in it it recognizes that a woman in prostitution should never be treated as a criminal we wouldn't ever criminalize the um victims of domestic violence obviously um right and prostitution is a form of domestic violence except it's on the streets not in the home and um so not only is other people in prostitution decriminalized because it Giving them a jail sentence does not in any way help them exit the life or or get out of this. In fact, I work with one Uh, survivor. She was taken to jail 103 times and never once offered services but put in jail for prostitution over many years. So, um, and the last part of this policy is that they offer um, services and programs, um, you know, if desired, for any women in prostitution. So the government really get behind providing these programs. And I met with many of them while I was in Sweden, a lot of these um, incredible programs and and services and drop-in centers. And so they're they're offering exit services, um, enabling women to get out. And so Sweden is a country that will have uh, a few hundred women in prostitution who are offered services and they're not criminalized. Whereas a country like Germany, um, has around half a million women in prostitution, the vast majority between 80 and 90% are uh, from Eastern Europe, um, the three countries consistently that I was told were Bulgaria, Hungary um, and Albania uh, and Romania as well and um, 1 to 1.5 million men every day in Germany by sex and where it's fully legalized mm. in countries like Germany and the Netherlands um, everyone knows the infamous Amsterdam windows. I was also in Germany and yes. the Netherlands last month too, and just seeing how if a bachelor party is going to go and buy women in prostitution, they'll go to Amsterdam, they'll go to Germany, they'll go to countries that fully legalize prostitution. They won't be going to Stockholm, Sweden, mm. where they could be arrested and fined and even imprisoned. Yeah, or yeah. And so um, we just take a real like an approach that fully supportive of this Nordic equality model. And there's lots of organizations in the US that are trying to bring it to the States, kind of state by state. And um, I think it's really important because there's also another movement to fully legalize and decriminalize prostitution. And most people don't realize that all decriminalization includes the sex buyers and the pimps. So if you hear Mm -hmm. talk about policy, you always want to find out exactly what They're referring to. And I've heard people be like, well, the prohibition approach clearly doesn't work. So we should just legalize prostitution and that'll help the police really go after the real trafficking mittens. But I respond to that, well, has that approach worked in the Netherlands or worked in Germany? Mm. Like, no, it hasn't at all. It's normalized as a culture, prostitution. And I really believe there'd be a lot of men men deterred from buying sex. And well, we know men are deterred from buying sex where it's felony level. Offense. so that is a policy that um like in twenty years' time, if we could see the majority of countries known for sex tourism um pass that law, that would be like a first step in mm. in really helping a a, cult, a culture in a country understand prostitution correctly and being able to offer proper exit services and housing and all the things people need to actually exit prostitution so we have a lot more information about that on our website. We've made some great educational videos about it as well. Uh, I would love to see more lawyers get into this work who are passionate about this and yes. want to um, to work to bring about the Nordic model in America.
0: That is so amazing. Absolutely. I, I think it's so cool that we have that as a model and something to work for and strive for. And so in the States, are there things that you would suggest, um, as far as action steps we can take to, to just get closer to having that be our reality one day.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I, um, I think the first piece of advice I'd, I'd recommend to everyone is to really get educated. Like a lot of people find out about this issue and their immediate question is, what can I do? How can I help? Like, how can I donate or how can I volunteer? Um, I want to come out with you on outreaches and reach the women as well. And I, I love that. And I, I totally understand that because that was my exact response when I first found out fully about this yeah. issue. I can't overemphasize the importance of really taking the time to educate yourself because then you become an abolitionist yourself and through your own knowledge and expertise, read books by survivors, listen to um, podcasts and I can re- recommend a few in a second and obviously um, i feel like the best starting point would be to watch our, our first documentary called nefarious merchant of souls we put it on youtube for free and mm. it won like more than 20 film festival awards it's been shown at the un and in comments all around the world it's been used to change laws and uh, educate about the nordic model wow. so that gives a really fantastic global overview and understanding human trafficking so anyone listening has not seen that film and you have a heart for the issue of trafficking, that's an absolute minimum starting point. And we also have a podcast as yes. well that really goes deep um, and interviews a ton of uh, amazing advocates and survivors and experts in this field. And so just really take a few months to to educate yourself. If you feel like this is something that you want to learn more about, and I know that like, if you even feel that, then you are called to be involved in some way. I think – some people, they hear about this topic and they just immediately switch off and they're like, I can't, I, I don't want my my comfortable world to be disrupted. And I, <laughs> I you know, or they're not in the season to really delve deep into this and I understand. Um, but for those of you who are like, no, actually I wanna know more. I wanna be able to be educated and a voice and I want to be able to be at a dinner party and someone brings up the topic of human trafficking or pornography. And I'm the most educated person in the room. And I can um, explain and educate an entire room of people um, within a few minutes um, exactly what's going on. Mm. And so just educate yourself. The number one book I'd recommend as a starting point is called Paid For by Rachel Moran. And she is an Irish uh, sex trade survivor um, who was in the mm. sex industry from the age of 15. And she just really gives her personal perspective, but then the global perspective. And it's it was just wow. the most like hard-hitting books out of the 50-plus survivor memoirs and other books I've read. So I'd recommend that as a starting point. Um, and checking out mm. our website, following us on social media, tracking, and other organizations as well. And um, There's lots of amazing anti-trafficking organizations who are doing a phenomenal job of educating and podcasts and. And so I just say never under, underestimate the season of educating yourself and having that be a, a goal to be able to be knowledgeable, articulate, and be able to convince someone. Like if I'm in an Uber Uber ride, I, because of my British accent, I often get asked like, "What are you doing in America? And what's your job?" And yeah. sometimes <laughs> in like a 15 minute car ride, I'm able to educate them about prostitution um, and trafficking, and then give them mm. a business card and business cards with the films. (laughs) I would also say if you're really wanting to learn more about the intersections of pornography and trafficking, um, the first film we released on on pornography is called Raised on Porn, and that's on our Magic Lantern Pictures YouTube channel. All of our films are linked on our website, um, so that's probably the best starting point. And that film, it's only 35 minutes long, but it really unpacks the impact of childhood exposure to pornography and how it leads to different behaviors and addictions. And it's really such a uh, profound and important starting point for understanding um, the impact of pornography on the brain. And then the series that we just released uh, called Beyond Fantasy, first episode is called Barely Legal, and the second and third episodes coming out um, in the next few weeks, one will be on hardcore and one will be on the rampant STDs in porn. That episode is called Unsafe Sex. And um, it's a project that we've been working on for around 10 years. And every single person interviewing wow. the film is in the porn industry, formerly or currently. So it's the biggest expose on the porn industry of any documentary ever made, in my opinion. And um, the things that these people say on camera, you would not believe. Um, and so um, if you have a, if you're the film is designed for activists and current porn consumers, um, we really want to wake people up to the reality of what they're consuming and um yeah the the violence in porn the barely legal genre that takes just turned 18 year old girls and dresses them up as children with teddy bears and pigtails and lollipops and it's a whole pornographic genre and leads leads fantasy into a place of fantasy with underage children um which is really dangerous and really mm. harmful so if you have yes. a a real like desire to know more about this and want to be educated then I, I and then watching it but just knowing that it might be the most disturbing documentary you ever watch in your life but it's incredibly important to know about as well so yeah all of our films and resources are on our website and um we we'd love for people to stay connected with us and support what we're doing yeah reaching out to us signing up to our newsletter um and there's lots of organizations doing phenomenal work as well there might be like smaller organizations in your own local city that you could volunteer with in a hands-on way. And I really encourage people. There's often more opportunities to help and serve than you think. And um, I know that any person I've ever taken on outreach, that's changed their life forever. And so even if you end up yes. using your skills to, to serve in some other way, um, this is something that we need everyone, and all hands on deck. This is one of the most major injustices yes. of our day and age. So whatever you have in your hand, you can use whatever sphere of influence, whatever yes. voice or platform, whatever resources. You, Hannah, having this, this podcast and platform and desire to, to, to spotlight this topic, you're using what's in your hand. So um, just, I feel like people sometimes think, oh gosh, I've got to, if I want to really fight human trafficking, I have better become a therapist. Like that's what I should do to then help survivors. But actually... You might not be the best therapist, you might be really gifted and talented in so many other ways that you can actually creatively use to to still fight this injustice and still be a voice in your own way as the unique person that you were made to be.
0: Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think what you said earlier, just about just doing what you can with what you have. And like, it's as simple as loving, looking for and loving the vulnerable people around you. It can make such a huge difference. And it doesn't have to be this zero to a hundred thing where all of a sudden you're this crazy activist now that you've learned about human trafficking and, and the porn industry and all these things. But I'm just so grateful, Helen, for the work that you're doing and for Exodus Cry, the resources that you've made available and the way that you're equipping and activating people to go and do the work right where they're at so thank you so much for sharing thank you so much for being here today this has been so helpful and just exciting to hear that things are shifting and that we can be a part of it
1: absolutely no it's an exciting time for activism we've still got a lot more work to be done but i really feel like um the wheels of justice are moving so um yeah thank you for having me on and
0: for educating your listeners and um yeah really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to tune into another episode of the ByWords show. I love having you here and I'm so thankful for your support. Don't forget to share a screenshot of this episode to let me know you were here. I can't wait to talk again soon, but in the meantime, be sure to come hang out with me on Instagram and remember I am cheering you on.